we are basically going to do a little bit of a discussion about who we are and how we got into this and fill in some details One for people who kind of are wondering why two random software engineers have a serious obsession with like cardiovascular disease pathology and insulin resistance. Um, so I'm Nick Andre, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a Google engineer here in Seattle. Um, and in my spare time, I eat a pretty much carnivorous diet at this point. Uh, and this is my compadre, Nathan. Hey folks, I'm Nathan Owens, uh, and I'm a software engineer for Netflix. Well, I guess technically not a software engineer. I work on all the content delivery infrastructure in my as my day job so that your Netflix video streaming works. Um, but in my spare time, I'm also pretty obsessed with the root causes of cardiovascular disease um, and all kinds of chronic disease because my LDL is super high from eating a mostly carnivorous ketogenic diet. And I want to make sure that that's not going to kill me. That would be nice. Yeah. So even though I also eat a carnivorous diet, Nathan has managed to be fully double my LDL. Mine seems to hover in the 230s to 240s, and you, uh, you do better. Yeah, I've than actually I. I've managed to max out the over 3,500 nanomol per liter uh, assay for LDL particle count. And we were pretty convinced that uh, like A plus B didn't equal C. Like the direct LDL measurement didn't add along with the HDL to get the total cholesterol. Like you're outside of the range of the test sufficiently that it's not. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't work. My remnant cholesterol is negative, apparently, which is, yeah. seems implausible. So anyways, um, from my side of things, I kind of uh, got into the nutrition sphere the way most people do. I, so I have a whole nutrition talk for those who want to hear more about this in detail. But I um, ended up gaining weight abnormally starting with uh, I had kind of a, a pretty severe like illness when I was in third grade and ended up underweight. But by the time I was in fourth grade and, and into fifth grade, I had gained enough weight that my mom took me to the doctor to kind of uh, understand like why I was gaining weight so fast. And they're like, oh, of course, you're just like a slovenly glutton. You just need to be less gluttonous. And so I kind of uh, applied that mantra throughout my entire um, childhood and through my early college years. And it was just about totally ineffective at uh, achieving any measurable increase. Really all that it did was kind of make me pretty unhappy um, because the when you deal with a framework that's like basically equates uh, being overweight with being weak-willed and then you try your best to be as strong-willed as you possibly can and you totally fail, the only conclusion you can really draw from that is that you're kind of a worthless human being. And that's sounds almost like a like a reductio ad absurdum, but that's actually what the hypothesis kind of implies if you take it literally. Um, and then I ended up trying a ketogenic diet in 2014 and the results were just, they absolutely blew me away. Um, basically all of a sudden I was fit and happy and healthy and exercise felt good and I had energy back and I was very, very confused because that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and I, I remember when I was in that first phase, I, I Googled, I, you know, people kept saying that you should eat fat on a ketogenic diet. And at a certain point, you know, some other people said, well, that's, that's bad. Like fat's bad for you. And I was like, well, that's confusing. So I just Googled does saturated fat cause heart disease. And that led me to the Wikipedia page, literally titled the controversy over whether or not saturated fat causes heart disease. At which point I started kind of scratching my head because I was like the hell, like I thought that this was written in stone tablets descended on high, that, that this was a law of the land yet somehow there's a Wikipedia page on the controversy and it had a, like a column of evidence that, that 
supports the hypothesis and evidence against it. Um, and, you know, I ended up going to low carb Breckenridge, which uh, back in 2018, which was pretty awesome experience. I had never been to one of these conferences. And I'd seen all the talks on YouTube, but I'd never been. And my dad basically like out of the blue messaged me. He's like, hey, like, what do you think about going to low carb Breckenridge? And I was like, well, I didn't really want to go alone. And then he was like, well, if I go, kind of was thinking of going and I'm like, okay, well, if you go, I'll go. And then we like, it was like two weeks out and we booked our tickets in 2018 and both ended up in at like 9,500 feet of elevation in Breckenridge uh, together, which was pretty awesome experience. But I, um, I got a, more seriously into the science at that point after seeing all these people who were doing this really amazing work to understand because the, the whole thing about a ketogenic diet is it works, but we don't really know why. Um, and that's, it's kind of that anomalous observation that suggests that the food pyramid was wrong, but it's not clear yet what are the mechanisms and what's going on. And, and people even today debate over, you know, I know Kevin Hall vehemently disagrees that the carbohydrate insulin model is the dominant reason or, you know, and, and it's, it leads to a bunch of very interesting hypotheses. Like one of the things that I would really like to see are better data on, you know, when you put someone on a meat only diet, how important are calories? And if you, you know, kind of randomize people when, when you've eliminated food that might be considered toxic, like what is that, what does that do to, to the, the caloric balance theory? And I, I'm suspicious that it, it's not going to come out as a caloric um, balance theory would posit if you randomize people to like under calories, like 2000 calories a day versus normal at like 2700 versus like 4000. I, I think you'd see weird things when it came to weight management. But anyways, so I, I ended up exactly what led me into to heart disease but i remember being kind of bothered by a lot of the vernacular like you, you get to medicine and it's this incredibly precise field where they use very accurate terms and they have their own set of vocabulary and when it came to heart disease it seemed like there was a lot of hand waving going on and even within um web pages on WebMD and things, you got very vague terminology. And I started to ask some questions. I was like, well, th there, there was this contention about lean mass hyperresponder and Dave Feldman was talking about that at Breckenridge. And I, I was like, well, how much of the cholesterol in an atherosclerotic lesion is inside LDL versus not? Like, what is the composition of an atherosclerotic lesion? And I tried to find the answer to that question and found it incredibly difficult to dig up basic facts on it. And I, I kind of being a cynic, I was like, well, something tells me that if the, the basic information about the pathology supported the conventional axiom, that that would be all plastered all over the internet. But yet it's really, you know, you got very vague answers, like heart disease lesions are kind of comprised of fatty, waxy stuff. And that's higgledy piggledy, you know, good day. Uh, and that, therefore, you know, didn't like the bacon. And it was like, wait a minute. I, I was like, that's that's fishy to me. And sure enough, if you looked at like the National Institute of Health's webpage, they didn't even, they just straight up admitted that we have no idea what's going on. Um, I, I find some of the language they use funny because they kind of, if you actually read through the webpage on atherosclerosis from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, it like, it says like, it goes and defines the disease. And then it it says like, cause of atherosclerosis and it says the exact cause of atherosclerosis is not known and then it says something totally irrelevant it's like but heart disease is a slow disease and it goes back to like defining the disease so they they say they kind of try to imply that they know the not exact cause of heart disease and then 
you know, most of the time when people are actually talking in the cause section of atherosclerosis, they go back to, to definition of the disease itself. So anyways, I, I kind of started, I, I was like, well, where can I find really high quality literature on heart disease? And I, I was actually really unsure where to start. I, I had read kind of Malcolm Kendrick, um, a lot of his blog posts, and I found it pretty interesting, but at the same time I felt that we, it wasn't clear from reading Malcolm Kendrick's blog what exactly I was supposed to do. He kind of like recommends some supplements and to not be stressed and then that's kind of it. And that didn't sit well with me because you read like Nina Teicholtz and it's clear that th there was an epidemic going on at some point in time and different people have different perspectives on this. But I think the fact that um, coronary thrombosis was not mentioned in popular textbooks in like the 1915 era is kind of telling in terms of the the incidence rate, I, I think those things, you kind of have to pay attention to those, even though people will suggest otherwise. It's pretty clear that there were people who were senior age who were alive and, there were, and it was very rare to get angina or, or a lot of these diseases that seem to be extraordinarily common now. And, and so I wanted something that was a little bit better than that. But one of the books that Malcolm Kendrick referenced was um, this uh, conference proceeding. Apparently his mentor was Elspeth B. Smith, who I, uh, there was a conference proceeding that was referenced where Elspeth spoke a lot about, I forget exactly the page it was on in Kendrick's, but I think it was talking about the, the fact that a uh, fatty streak was a separate and independent pathology from a mature atherosclerotic lesion. So it, it appeared that uh, a fatty streak was not a precursor to an atheros, like a fibrous lesion. And that, that, I found pretty interesting. So I ended up buying that book on Amazon and then kind of went through the whole book as much as I found kind of interesting. And it was actually incredibly insightful. That that book spent a lot of time talking about uh, things that contradicted hypotheses. They, they, they said for the first time that I'd ever seen in, in heart disease research, it said, this seems to run contrary to our hypothesis was a phrase that I found in that book. And I was like, oh my God, I've never seen that before in any heart disease paper that I've ever read in my life. And I started kind of walking the citation tree from there and ended up, they cited Velikin and Velikin, which at that point I proceeded to go to the library and print out every single paper that Velikin had published in the journal Atherosclerosis, all the way from like 66 to the mid 80s. And then I realized that he had written a book and bought that book. Actually, I bought the only two copies on Amazon that were anywhere near affordably priced because I knew that this after I got the first copy, I realized it was a pretty important book and I, I was unable to find any information on this elsewhere. And that book was very dense, but incredibly illuminating in terms of the pathology. And again, repeated all these observations that he, he said rather directly that it was clear that risk factors did not predict the beginning of heart disease and that we were clearly missing something. He talked about the these paradoxes of the fact that if we have a response to retention hypothesis where our primary idea about how heart disease happens is that LDL gets in there first, there's a huge problem if you can go and look in deceased tissue and find early heart disease lesions that don't have any lipid accumulation whatsoever. And so that reading through this has been, it, it was a very enlightening experience and I really enjoyed how precise he was and how, I mean, just the number of references is absolutely staggering in that book. And as well as the 
thoroughness and he talked about a number of things that even at the time I didn't necessarily think were that important. He had an entire chapter on like the electrical systems of the heart and I said, oh, that doesn't matter. Atherosclerosis clearly totally unrelated to the electrical system. And then like lo and behold, recently we're finding that that I really need to go reread that chapter. But And following this, I had started to see references and, and talking with Chauvin at it was low carb Denver. It was clear that we were missing something and it was clear that she, I think, was the first person to posit to me the hypothesis that Im immune activation seems to be pretty key here. Just because of black box model and you see all the involvement of inflammation markers and whatever, and uh, the fact that uh, macrophages are all throughout atherosclerotic plaque and lipoproteins seem to have immune association. And that's kind of as far as I got before I ended up meeting Nathan at Low Carb Seattle this past year. I guess it was in uh, what's that, March. Yep. Yeah, so, and then he has been sending me just a prodigious number of papers, like my phone, I'm trying to get work done and it just like buzzes every few minutes with a new paper. Um, and I'm and, totally trying to get work done too. Yeah, I know, we all gotta, gotta balance the J jobs, you know, but uh, so he's been pretty awesome at like helping me take that pathology and starting to relate it to a lot of other research, especially more modern stuff that we found to unify it because through the pathology work that I found, we've found a series of these observations that we really want to be able to explain. And that we've, they're simply like the existence of a lesion that doesn't have lipid accumulation and pre-exists other risk factors like hypertension and basically anything you can imagine. That really, especially because a lot of this pathology work was done in, I guess, the Ukraine in the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s before the obesity epidemic really happened. And, and so to observe that you have young adults in their 20s with early fibrous lesions, we, we really need to be able to explain that. And and basically what Velikin said was that that predates all risk factors that, that one would expect. You know, they didn't have elevated LDL, they didn't have anything else. We need something that's better to explain how atherogenesis is, is happening. And I know, you know, the, the running hypothesis is that, oh, it's always and for all time happened to all humans. I, I don't know, especially given other animal species comparisons and the, uh, the extent to which we've changed our diet. So anyways, that's something that I've been very interested in. And I guess, Nathan, you want to talk a little bit about what you have been uh, looking into? Yeah, sure. So I guess to give a little background about myself, um, uh, I uh, got pretty fat in college and had some health issues prior to that. I had um, yeah, asthma and allergies as a kid. Um, and in my first year of college, I definitely had the, the freshman 15 packed on the pounds. Um, and I think around 2012, which I started uh, calorie counting because of course, you know, that's what you get told, like Nick said, you know, it's calories in versus calories out, of course. And, you know, simply count your calories in MyFitnessPal and log your exercise in MyFitnessPal. And if the number is negative, you'll lose weight. And everything will be fine. Your visceral adipose tissue will go to zero and you'll be happy and healthy for all time. Yeah, that's totally how it works. Turns out, not really. Did manage to lose some weight doing that, but it wasn't super pleasant. Um, kind of half-assed counted calories until I want to say 2017, 2018. Um, and then at some point I heard about intermittent fasting and I was, I think at that point, actually I was on a more or less all Soylent diet, I guess, uh, make fun of me for that as, as you will. I, I felt pretty good. Honestly, I was drinking a lot of like coffeeist and chocolate flavors. It was pretty decent, but I'd heard about intermittent fasting and I was like, well, that's surely one way to restrict calories. 
Um, so I ended up doing intermittent fasting for a while along with like fasted cardio in the morning. I actually ended up losing a lot of weight doing that. And I think I was browsing Reddit or something on our nutrition. And I saw a post mentioning like, you know, intermittent fasting, maybe it was a paper flipping the metabolic switch. I think that was it. And it was talking about uh, time restricted feeding and fasting and how that uh, can end up putting you into ketosis. And I was like, oh, keto, I've heard that. That's a diet thing everybody's talking about. Uh, it's got to be bullshit, right? <laughs> and uh, since this was a scientific paper, it really piqued my interest. Like, oh, this keto ketosis thing, keto means ketosis and ketosis is actually like a biologic mechanism. So I started looking into that and I went on YouTube and I watched literally every single possible lecture from all of the low carb conferences, um, pretty much every podcast that, you know, Dave Feldman and all those folks had done. I got my advanced lipid testing done. My cholesterol was through the roof. Um, and that really just uh, sent me down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out, you know, what the heck this meant and what I was going to do about it. And I felt pretty confident that there were holes in the existing research that were pointed out by folks like David Diamond and um, Dave Feldman's energy model made a lot of sense, but there still weren't really any answers about what was actually causing the disease. Um, and then I decided since low carb Seattle was nearby and it wasn't actually in Seattle, it was in Bellevue, which is kind of annoying, but, uh, luckily my roommate was out of town. So I got to borrow his car to drive to Bellevue, but go for the accord. Yes, I did. Um, so yeah, I ended up going there. I ran into Nick. He was like the only person my age there and found out he was also a software engineer. And he started telling me, uh, very interesting things about pathology. And I knew he had a clue about what he was talking about. So. We uh, chatted quite a lot over some Fogo de Chao in Bellevue and uh, have been tag teaming this uh, atherosclerosis research since then. And I think we've made a lot of good progress. So uh, like Nick was mentioning when he talked to Siobhan Huggins uh, at Low Carb Breckenridge, I was talking to Dave Feldman and Siobhan at Low Carb Seattle along with Nick. Um, and Dave was telling me kind of his, his spitballing hypothesis that it was something to do with, you know, the body couldn't repair atherosclerosis. It was an inability to repair. Siobhan had, you know, kind of a, a basic immune hypothesis that LDL was involved in the immune system. And my thought with the response to repair was like, hey, autophagy, that's a thing. Like, how is that related? So I started digging into um, how autophagy and AMPK and mTOR and mTOR inhibitors and all these things Kind of play in found a lot of super interesting stuff there that we'll probably have to come back to because i think that loops in but eventually found just a treasure trove of immune related pathways that um, relate very well to the pathology research that we found and can really explain a lot of the anomalous observations things like the paradox with um, low lipid levels but high cardiovascular disease in folks with rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases um, it could potentially explain why those with atherosclerosis have increased risk of cancer. Um, I just think it's a way more compelling hypothesis that can actually explain the observations, whereas the current LDL causal hypothesis kind of ignores a lot of anomalous observations. And I just think, a couple. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, even if it's just a couple, I think, yeah. you know, a, a reasonable hypothesis in science that has such broad implications since atherosclerosis and myocardial infarction are essentially the, the number one cause of death. You know, it's, it's important for a theory to actually, or a hypothesis in that theory to be able to explain the observations. 
And I think the current theory fails to do so. And it's important that that's remedied so that we can actually make progress in targets to resolve this, which is probably diet. Um, I think. Surprise, it's nutrition. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, all this stuff we're putting in our food hole is actually important, it turns out. And um, that's, you know, something we have to do. And speaking of what we put in our food hole, I too am currently as of recording doing more or less a carnivore diet and my digestive system has never been happier in my whole life. Used to get a lot of stomach aches when I was eating, you know, crap food and uh, my digestion is perfect. My mental clarity is awesome and uh, very much enjoying it. Eating pounds and pounds of steak. It's pretty great. Yeah. And just talking about the One of the things that's bothered me about the uh, the LDL hypothesis as well is just the extraordinary, extraordinarily weak correlation. We've just accepted, we've accepted a model where, you know, from from my experience, if you think that A causes B, um, you should expect a very strong correlation. If you hypothesize that cigarettes cause lung cancer, you should expect to see that there's a huge correlation, especially if that's the cause. When you find very weak cause, that's usually an indication that you are looking in the right ballpark, but that you are some degree removed from the actual answer to the problem, right? If you're seeing kind of perturbations, because with LDL, what you do find is that you have an association sometimes, an inverse association other times. It's clearly not totally independent. It's clearly involved. But the first assumption that you'd make is like, well, you're coming, you're kind of nearing the right mechanism, but you're probably three degrees removed from, from the mechanism itself. That's the first assumption you'd make from an engineering perspective if you found those sorts of numbers. And instead, what you find is these extraordinarily contorted logical whatevers, frameworks and ad hoc hypotheses to kind of justify these increasingly, even though it's increasingly obvious, we're simply unable to to explain what we see. And I think, you know, you have a drug that you know, pretty much fails to do anything meaningful. Like, you know, if, if your hypothesis is that cholesterol causes heart disease and fat raises cholesterol and you have a drug that lowers cholesterol, so it attacks the second half of that hypothesis. And even despite the fact of, uh, you know, a 70% reduction in, in LDL totally fails to even make the mortality budge, that's a pretty clear indication that you've missed. Um, and instead we get these bizarre models where People take the conclusion that the drug didn't work and they say, well, it must just be that that was the way it was meant to be, which is, you know, it, it must be a characteristic of the disease itself, which, you know, find me another disease that has such a characteristic where when you remove the cause, if indeed LDL is so important and you don't actually stop people from dying in any appreciable amount of years. Um, I think that it would be very interesting to put people on a whole foods or a carnivore diet, especially if you got uh, people who are secondary prevention who are very likely to have a repeat heart attack. I think that that would be a really fascinating study to do uh, because that would at least test the nutrition hypothesis if you can totally eliminate the, the, the problem. Um, we'll see. One of these days I'll have my wish to like get a, a, a horde of 200 of them and randomize them between standard of care and absolutely no medications plus like a, a healthy diet, you know. I don't know if the ethics board will approve of that. Let's start with our feeding study. I think that that's <laughs> the perhaps study. a little less risky. If we show that we don't kill everyone in the feeding study by feeding them 4,000 calories of meat, yeah. uh, 
then then maybe the ethics board will let us move on to uh, you know some heart attack prone old people. Yeah, well, it's definitely interesting. I don't know if you uh, we we can probably talk for hours. So our plan is to kind of create uh, a podcast where we go into depth in these things. We'll talk about the pathology. We'll talk about the explanations that we want to be able to explain. We'll talk a little bit, you know, flogging a dead horse on why we think the LDL hypothesis is not that great. And we'll also go into the immune stuff and as best we can lay out, understand the pathways and provide all the, one of the things we've been doing is kind of looking at multiple different angles on this problem and trying to make sure that when you attack the problem in different ways, Malcolm Kendrick talks a lot about this, but making sure that when you approach the problem in different ways, you look at, you know, does the drug do the same thing as this and that? Uh, if you have multiple different angles, mutations and drugs and autoimmune diseases and other things like that, that if you can see them aligning, that gives you greater confidence in the hypothesis. So we'll have to obviously a lot of ground to cover. Anything uh, you have? Yeah, we're we're also going to do interviews with uh, people who are doing interesting things in the space. So we've got uh, an episode recorded this morning with Gabor Dersi where we talked about. Um, the immune system, uh, gut hormones like GIP-1 and other incretins, insulin, talked about food additives, his theories, the immune system, all kinds of stuff. And we're looking forward to recording more of those. Uh, you know, I can't say that all of these people will definitely be on the podcast, but we're in conversation with Dave Feldman, uh, Paul Saladino, uh, Ethan Weiss, who is a proponent of the LDL hypothesis, Spencer Nadelsky, who's also pro LDL hypothesis, um, Nadir Ali, who's an interventional cardiologist, uh, and some other folks. So we'll, we'll look forward to those. Um, we're going to be posting them on the Patreon early, and then they'll be posted on, you know, your favorite podcast app. We'll post the videos on YouTube, um, and we'll probably try and get some show notes up with studies that were talked about, things like that. Uh, if we can, obviously we have day jobs, so we can't promise the highest quality of these things, but we're going to be able to, we're going to do our best to get as much information to you as we can. And we'll also be looking to do experiments. We have a number in the pipeline. Uh, we'll be collecting Patreon funds from people willing to support us because it turns out that overnighting Alyssa's on dry ice ends up being a little bit expensive, but we are going to look into trying to tie in a lot of these hypotheses and to do extensions of existing research that we have. One of the ones we, well, sorry, I would phrase it, existing research, but trying to extend it to carnivores and, and access to people that within this community, because if our hypothesis is that, I mean, one of the major confounders that I'm concerned about in the existing research is that a quote unquote healthy American may have already been exposed to you know, multiple decades of toxic food, and that may make the results not as clear, uh, depending upon what your model is. We, we talked a little bit with Gabor about what model is most appropriate for a black box characteristic. If, if your thesis is that we have a, a gut problem driving an immune problem, you know, we really need to show a difference. One of the things that really irks me about the LDL hypothesis is that it's arguing that a relatively small difference in concentration is causing huge downstream effect. And I think it would be much more compelling to find an effect size that is much greater because that would give you confidence that you can see larger differences because if you are arguing from a model perspective that 
a small difference, maybe you know, a 20, 30, 40% difference in LDL is causing these problems. You have to have a substantial nonlinearity in the effect in order for a 130 versus 180 milligram cholesterol level to substantially drive problems. Um, so looking and into it. We, we also want to be able to do experiments that people talk about doing, but don't really get done. So for example, um, ben Bickman has these great talks where he uses data from dogs looking at insulin and glucagon in response to protein. And we want to do that in humans. So we bought an insulin ELISA and turns out these things, it's a enzymatically linked immunoabsorbent assay. So it's um, basically a little microplate with 96 sample wells and you can put your blood in it and it changes color based on the concentration of insulin. And these things are not cheap. They range from 300 to $1,000 for 96 wells, of which you can run about 40 samples. So we have some experiments in mind to do um, a very high protein meal, a mixed meal of you know one-to-one -one protein to fat grams, and a very high fat meal. And we can actually measure our insulin response over, say, an eight-hour window or a five-hour window. We haven't fully decided yet. We'll probably try and get some friends. And we'll try and get, you know, maybe five people and we'll do a you know, five hour insulin response to, you know, 300 plus grams of protein and we'll see what happens. Um, we could also do glucagon in the future. We can measure pretty much any biological hormone. Uh, once we get the hang of these things, they're pretty straightforward. Basically cooking, right, Nick? Basically cooking. And also, sorry, my puppy has decided that something outside is very interesting. Uh, that's right. And is barking. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But... Yeah, your Patreon funds will go to funding things like this. We're open to suggestions. Um, you know, if you have suggestions, we would appreciate you know a full hypothesis and you know expected outcomes and you know if you can be bothered with it, you know materials, method, and procedure, that kind of thing, so that we can kind of evaluate the merits of these hypotheses and whether it's something that we can allocate funds towards. Um, Nick and I have both invested a lot of personal money into this already, and we'll continue to do that. And we have, you know, no problem doing that, but we would definitely appreciate the support. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. We have lots more coming up, um, plenty of podcasts to check out. And we'll be rootcausinghealth.com is our brand new website. Uh, the Twitter handle is rootcause. Rootcausing. And the Patreon is rootcausinghealth as well. Yep. Yeah. And we'll put those links cool. in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for tuning in.